0: Thank you, LJ, for leading us, and good morning, everybody. My name is Michael, and I have the privilege of speaking today, and we will be continuing our series, That They May Be One. Today we'll be looking at the power of curiosity and its connection to conversion. But first, check out this video.
1: There'll be those who will not look beyond the picture of me shaking hands with a Klansman in a robe and hood. And of course, they'll have that visceral reaction, like, what the hell is going on here?
2: It is something we never see, a black man attending KKK rallies, where crosses are burning and racist views are being spewed.
1: Some of their beliefs are that African Americans, black people, are born with smaller brains, that we are, we are inherently lazy, uh, we are inherently prone to crime. Um, raping people, especially white women.
2: Despite that offensive ideology, Daryl Davis has spent decades befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. How do you talk to someone when someone's calling you the N-word?
1: Because you take the higher road. You know who you are. There is one question
2: Daryl has repeatedly asked members of the Klan.
1: How can you hate me when you don't even know me? They've never had an answer that they can come up with that justifies how they can hate me.
2: His conversations with Klansman resulted in something Daryl never expected.
1: I would find things in common. And as I began to build on those commonalities, the things that we had in contrast as trivial as skin color began to matter less and less. And as I built upon those commonalities, a relationship was formed.
2: In the last 30 years, Daryl says 200 members across the country have left the KKK as a direct result of his involvement.
1: He was very vicious, very violent, and very racist. But at the very end, he said that he respected me.
2: Many of those who've left have given Daryl their robes and hoods. He keeps them in his home. It's a journey that is documented in the film Accidental Courtesy.
1: I consider Frank to be my friend. I consider Daryl to be my friend as well.
0: Amazing. I was so impressed by Daryl that I started looking into him, and I learned that when he first encountered racism, and it was pretty bad, he had things thrown at him, and he was called all kinds of racial slurs, that he didn't react in the normal way. Daryl refused to fight back. He didn't demonize or hate his adversaries. He didn't get involved in contentious social media debates. He was just confused. Daryl asked a lot of questions, but mostly he wondered, how can somebody hate me if they never even met me? And it was that question that led him to try and understand and connect with his oppressors in the Ku Klux Klan. To spend time with them, to let the members of that hate group experience who he really was. Daryl asked them questions about their beliefs, and they let him let them ask him questions as well, so that his persecutors could make an informed decision about whether Daryl was worth hating. Daryl didn't just outright dismiss his opponents, but he met them where they were at. He built a relationship with them. And those three factors of questions, time together, and empathy successfully changed the lives of over 200 Ku Klux Klan members, and quite frankly, Daryl, for the better. With those three principles in mind, questions, time together, and empathy, let's turn to the Gospel of John and examine the life of Nicodemus, a man who struggled with his own beliefs and identity after spending time with his political and social rival, Jesus of Nazareth. Nicodemus only appears three times in the 22 chapters of John. We are first introduced to him in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. We are told that he's a Pharisee and the ruler of the Jews. Now, this means that he had some degree of wealth, that he was well-respected, and that his success and livelihood were tied to the religious and political views of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are one of the dominant groups of Jews in Jerusalem during Jesus' day. They were supposed to be the leaders and the teacher of God's ways. But unfortunately, the Pharisees were also the group Jesus constantly criticized during his ministry, and the Pharisees were primarily responsible for pushing the Romans to execute Jesus. So Nicodemus and Jesus, they were political enemies, and Jesus was a threat to everything Nicodemus had, his wealth, his status, his position, everything that he'd built. It seemed like Jesus and Nicodemus were destined to be mortal enemies, except After Jesus came to the Jewish temple and he taught with authority and he performed various miracles and signs, Nicodemus could no longer outright dismiss him. Nicodemus had become conflicted between everything that he had believed from the past and built being connected with the Pharisees versus the words and the deeds of Jesus. And this is why Nicodemus went to go see Jesus at night. He was trying to explore what Jesus was all about without risking his standing with the Pharisees. Nicodemus and Jesus talked, and Jesus challenged him to be mysteriously born again, and he welcomed him to publicly stand with Jesus in the light. It's interesting to note that a great portion of that conversation was composed of the two parties simply asking each other questions. Regardless, Nicodemus left that secret meeting more conflicted than ever, and he did not yet begin to follow Jesus openly. But Jesus being God and all, he kind of anticipated Nicodemus's conversion might be a process, which is why he explained to Nicodemus that even if he couldn't commit to him then and there, that once Jesus was lifted up, that he would have another opportunity to make that commitment, a clear allusion to Jesus being lifted up on the cross, that through his death, new faith could be captured. The next time we see Nicodemus was in John chapter 7, verses 45 through 53. Here, the tension and animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees has reached new heights. The time for discussion is at an end, and the Pharisees are now looking to capture and kill Jesus. And that threat would extend to anyone who publicly stood with Jesus. After sending men to incarcerate Jesus and failing, the Pharisees met and were enraged to learn that Jesus was still alive and free. And it's here, in this meeting about how to find a way to murder Jesus, that Nicodemus steps forward and he takes a risk to subtly defend Jesus. Nicodemus interrupts his peers' murderous plot by stating,
3: Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it?
0: Thank you, divine voice. Uh, notice that Nicodemus chose his words carefully. He didn't come outright and defend Jesus, but instead, what he did was he said, If we go ahead and kill Jesus, we'll be violating our own law. And, and so it's an integrity issue, it's got nothing to do Jesus, with Jesus. So he defends him sort of indirectly. Uh, the Pharisees, though, they weren't interested in integrity. And they immediately questioned Nicodemus' loyalty, essentially asking him, hey, are you with Jesus or are you with us? And in that moment, Nicodemus has another opportunity to step up and declare his faith in Christ. So Nicodemus dug deep and he looked his fellow Pharisees right in the eyes. And the text tells us that he, he quietly went home without a word, swinging a miss. But like any good trilogy, after a second failure, there was one more movie moment that needed to play out. And so we pick up with our final appearance of Nicodemus in chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. The Pharisees have successfully captured and killed Jesus. His body is hanging limp up on a cross. There is no indication in the text that Nicodemus did anything to try and stop Jesus's demise. Conflicted, confused, Nicodemus stood by and let a man that he secretly admired be killed without cause. It seems as though Nicodemus' faith was as lifeless as Jesus' crucified body hanging up high on the cross. But here's where the story gets interesting. You would think that Jesus' vibrant speeches and miracles would have moved Nicodemus to publicly follow him. But as it turns out, it was Jesus' death that caused Nicodemus to step forward in great faith. We are told that he and another secret believer, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate to claim the body of Jesus. Now, normally when Rome crucified someone, they would leave the body up so that it would be a warning to others as to what happens when you challenge the sovereignty of Rome. These secret believers took a big risk by openly asking the man who just had Jesus killed if they could have his body so that they could publicly honor Jesus with a proper burial. Here, Nicodemus not only alerted the Roman authorities about his allegiances, but also the Pharisees by publicly purchasing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, which the text said weighed about a hundred pounds. This would have been a noticeable and expensive purchase an amount fitting someone of great honor and note. A clear sign that Nicodemus was indeed, at last, a follower of Jesus. Now there's one more subtle detail we gotta pay attention to to help us see Nicodemus's metamorphosis. And picking up in verse 40, the text reads,
3: so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. They laid Jesus there.
0: All right, now I'm gonna ask you guys a question here and I want you to type your answer into the chat. Okay, so just be ready for that. I want you to notice that Jesus was both killed and buried in a garden. And this garden is where Jesus came back to life to defeat death. Now, if you think of a garden in connection with Judaism, what comes to mind? Go ahead and type your answers in the chat. Judaism garden. Okay, I'm seeing a couple of private messages here. Um, No Valenzuela, not the Olive Garden, but, but they do multiply breadsticks, so that's close. And there's another one Fry says that place in New York, where you play basketball. I see where you're going there. That is also a garden, so you're not entirely wrong, but that's not what I'm looking for. Okay, I, no more private messages. I, I think everyone's kind of got it here. Yes, the Garden of Eden, yes. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, right, the Garden of Eden, and Genesis means beginning. So what happens in Genesis, right? God creates the world and his chosen people, the Adam and Eve thing, in a garden. And so creation and a fresh starter in view here. The Genesis language should also make us think about John's gospel, like the beginning of the text, which reads as follows.
3: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it.
0: So you see, at the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry, it's marked by creation language in the Gospel of John. That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a new creation is breaking in. Nicodemus experienced this new creation as he was at last born again in a garden. Just as as it was predicted in uh, John chapter 3, Jesus' death, being raised up on the cross had at long last birthed Nicodemus an authentic faith that would stand in the light and publicly honor and side with Jesus, his crucified Messiah. So what is it that John wants us to learn about the process of Nicodemus coming to a place where he was willing to risk his profession, his politics, his wealth, and his standing with the community all for the sake of being associated with Jesus? And I think the lesson is this. We're gonna be around a lot of people with diverse opinions that are often at odds with how we think about the world, but it's not our job to change people's minds by getting frustrated and angry and arguing. It's our job to love and serve others, to meet them where they are with humility and in doing so to point them to the cross. For it was at the cross where Nicodemus was finally able to publicly embrace Jesus, not as a Jewish leader, right, who was a rival, but as his personal dead Messiah. A lesson not so easy for the church to live out during these alienating times. And I'm including myself here. You know, I've always loved debating things. When I was a senior in high school, I took a forensics class, not the CSI stuff, but where you engage in various uh, speaking competitions. And my best event, my favorite event was debate. Using evidence and reason to prove my case and destroy my opponents. Oh boy, that was the stuff. And at the height of my powers, I was ranked third in the state and I began using my rhetorical skills in everyday life. Shockingly, that didn't go very well. I can still remember my freshman year of college where I started attending a Bible study at an Armenian church. I was really enjoying it until the youth pastor said something that I disagreed with. My reaction? I erupted into a diatribe about how what he just said was unbiblical. I was hurling numerous scriptural references and firing off logical syllogisms. I finished my tirade on a triumphal note, mic drop, and I sat back in my youthful satisfaction. Hmm, felt good, it did. That is until I looked around the room. And instead of being impressed by my debating skills or persuaded by my speech, all the college students were glaring at me. There was one girl in particular who had locked eyes with me. She was shaking her head. She was mouthing something I couldn't quite hear. Oh, but I understood it. It was pure hatred. And the youth pastor, well, he he patiently thanked me for my opinion and said, yeah, we we could discuss that at another time if that's what I wish. But none of this is what I expected. In debate class, when I laid out the evidence and I presented what seemed like a sound argument, I won. But here there was no winning. Here, all I did was make everyone mad. And that was my first impactful memory that taught me how you speak and treat others is just as important as what you think is true. I didn't try to understand that pastor's point of view before I spoke. I didn't consider how rude it would be to show him up during his own Bible study. I didn't think about the impact my argument would have on the other students and their feelings. I just thought, hey, I'm right. And that's good enough. As an immature Enneagram type eight, the challenger. My need for confrontation and domination trumped the needs of others. I neglected to demonstrate the love of Christ. As I matured over the years, I have been able to better grow into the nine wing, the peacemaker. And so now I'm better able to consider others' perspectives and give attention to their needs. I try to broker peace when I see my friends start to verbally throw down over ideas that they are deeply entrenched in. I try to find a common ground. I remind them of the good they can do together if they work for the kingdom, even if they don't see eye to eye on several issues. And opportunities to play peacemaker, man, they have come a lot more frequent during the recent months with the current social and political climate. I have, uh, I've sat listening to my Christian friends complain and groan about the political views of their other friends. On social media, I've watched my brothers and sisters in Christ engage in bitter arguments full of demonization, labeling, and hatred without a drop of empathy or grace extended towards the other. What really troubles me is that when we dismiss people in this way, we look just like the world. We lose our distinctiveness. I actually believe that this escalating tension and this hatred that's going on right now in our world is a real opportunity for the church to make a public display of what it looks like for people of different political views, races, gender, income, and depending on skinny jeans, which I'm against, but if you're not, that's okay. We can still be friends, right? To come together and to love and serve one another and the surrounding community. That the cross casts a shadow over all these things, over all these differences. And it shows how small they are when compared to the calling of the kingdom of God to love and to serve one another, just as Christ did for Nicodemus and is now doing so for us. Richard Rohr put it this way.
3: Unity is diversity embraced, protected, and maintained by an infinitely generous love. It takes grace and love and the spirit to achieve unity. Uniformity, on the other hand, can be achieved by coercion, shame, and fear.
0: Thank you, Angelic Boys. Both Daryl, who was a Christian, by the way, and Jesus, have modeled for us that instead of trying to make everyone think like you, we ought to spend meaningful time with people of different points of view. We need to have empathy towards them. We need to be willing to ask and answer genuine questions without demeaning their point of view. These three things, again, time, empathy, and questions are essential to the process of bringing people together through the way of the cross. And I believe that we would either practice these principles and shine like a light in the darkness, but we will continue down a dark path of enmity and anger, and that won't help anyone, including ourselves, and we'll lose our distinctiveness and our call of God to serve. So God, Lord, we pray, help us choose the path of grace and light and unity that you extended to us when we were far off and thought of as enemies. Amen.